Our scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 35. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. Who are the people in your life who really get you? Who really know you? The true you? The real you? Who are the people in your life who really understand you? It's not always family, right? I can think of a few friends who can appreciate things about me that my own family takes for granted, you know, that, that my family of origin overlooks, misses about me, and yet there are people outside of my family who really see, who really understand that, who really get me. Is that the same for you? How about people in your field of experience or expertise? You know, your, your, your work culture or your, your environment of hobby or special interest. Maybe your colleagues of experience. You know, some, I've met musicians whom I have very little in common with as a person. There are ministry people. There, there are pastors that even though we share a common vocation and a common experience, as people, we're, we're, we, we're incompatible. We have very little in common. Do you know what I mean? You, you can even share a passion with somebody, but share no passion for each other. 
Yeah? It, it was the same thing for Jesus. Uh, the people that you'd think would be natural fits for his inner circle weren't. Didn't fit at all. The, the, the two most common groups that you'd think would be right there with Jesus, befriending him, learning, him, learning from him, following him, part of his inner circle, or who? His family and, his, and religious colleagues. Family and clergy, right? Surely they would be close to Jesus. But we see in this passage that they don't get him at all. They don't understand him. Let's look at his family first. You know, every Every person who had an overdoting family, okay, like me or Ray Romano and everybody loves Raymond, everybody knows that your mom is supposed to be your biggest fan. Jesus' mother knew that he was special. I mean, an angel came and announced that she would be pregnant with him. That's a pretty big deal, right? And yet, as an adult, she still doesn't get him. His younger brother, James, would one day become possibly the most respected leader of the Jerusalem church years and years later. But right now, James is simply trying to shut his big brother up. If you look at verse 21 in our passage, it says that his family was on their way from Nazareth down to probably Capernaum. It says he went home as probably Peter and Andrew's house in Capernaum. Right? And there's all this hubbub, and his family hears about it, and they find it. The verse 21 says, he is out of his mind. They were coming to take him by force, big brother or my son. They were coming to take Jesus by force, arrest him as a family, and get him out of there because it says that they thought he was out of his mind. And the Greek expression for that English phrase is literally to stand beside yourself. They're saying that Jesus is beside himself. He's deranged. He's mentally unstable. The miracles, the teachings, the exorcisms, the public attention, the questions, the, the, the controversy, the crowds, it was all finally too much for his family. It didn't matter what he was doing. It didn't matter what he was saying. They were just fed up with all the attention. They were, they were done with the circus. And so the passage tells us they came to take him by force and get him out of there and bring him back to where they were because what he was doing, his lifestyle, was too much for them to handle. Now, the scribes, so another group of people you'd likely think, the scribes, I said last week, were legal experts in the Old Testament law. They knew the Old Testament backward and forward. And, and you'd think they'd be excited to learn from Jesus and to see the things that he was doing. But quite the opposite. They're not promoting him. As a matter of fact, the scribes are opposed to Jesus with a zeal that is beyond reason. I mean, they are so zealously against Jesus that they're being irrational about it. Verse 22. They say he's possessed by Beelzebul. That means Lord of the dung. No joke. Beelzebub was Lord of the flies. He's an old Canaanite god, and, and the Jews gave Satan that name. They called him Beelzebub. Beelzebul was, was a big rank out on Satan, saying he's Lord of the dung heap. Okay? Now, Jesus just calls him Satan. Jesus is very upfront about it. But 
They say, they're, they're accusing Jesus of being possessed by a demon. Verse 22, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So you see the scribes, rather than acknowledging that the teachings of Jesus, the healings of Jesus, the exorcisms of Jesus were from God, rather than saying that, they, they said just the opposite. All the amazing things we're seeing and hearing, it can't be good. It's got to be bad. It's got to be evil. We know he's possessed by Satan. That's why all this wonderful stuff is happening, because Jesus is possessed. Which, if you look at the context of Mark's gospel, you know that's ludicrous. If you're paying attention and you're reading Mark's gospel, you know that's absolutely ridiculous. And their skepticism is not based on reason. A lot of people, a lot of open skeptics who reject or uh, set themselves up as opponents of faith They say that their objections, that their skepticism is based on reason. Quite often it's not. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. You see here that the scribe's skepticism is is purely illogical. It's based on emotion. It's based on fear. So there's his family. They don't understand him. They're far too subjective. They can't see him for who he truly is. And then there are the scribes who are just passionately, illogically, against him. Can you relate to this? Can, can you relate to your family not understanding you? Can you relate to your colleagues openly opposing you, even slandering you or stabbing you in the back? The Bible tells us that Jesus was tested in every way, just like we are. And here's an example. I mean, Jesus put up with what you put up with. The difference with Jesus, the Bible says, is he was tested in all these ways, but he didn't sin. He didn't respond in a way to this testing that was sinful, that was destructive, that was dishonoring to the creator and harmful to the people around him. And we're going to see in Jesus's response something even more important about the kingdom of God. We keep following Mark's gospel and we we understand more deeply what the kingdom of God is that Jesus is proclaiming, okay? And now the curtains open even further on the reality of the kingdom of God. And we see it here in how Jesus responds to these two camps of people. Now, he has already called the 12, his apostles, on the mountainside He calls them, ironically, out of fishing boats and tax booths, right? So that's ironic. He's drawing this new community to himself from very unlikely um, subcultures and groups of people. He's welcoming sinners to eat with him, to learn from him, prostitutes and alcoholics. They're sitting at his feet. They're learning. They're spending time with him. This is a new community he's forming. It's a new humanity. Jesus is doing humanity phase two. Phase one didn't work out all that well, the Bible says. Jesus is here to start human nature phase two, the way it was supposed to be. It's a new community, and he's pulling people from very unlikely sources. And we're all invited to be a part of it, the Bible says. You, me, we're invited to be a part of the new humanity that Jesus has been creating for the last 2,000 years, starting with this unlikely group of people from tax booths and fishing boats and, who knows, maybe brothels. The people of God are a people of faith, 
And Jesus brings us together. That's what I want to talk about today. Now, Mark shows us in this passage that there's a distinguishing quality to the people who are part of this community, right? The people who really get Jesus, who really see Jesus as he is, there's a distinguishing feature to them, a quality about them. And we're going to find that distinguishing quality in Jesus's two responses. Let's talk about how he responds first to the scribes. Verses 23 through 27 highlight how Jesus reacts to what the scribes were saying about him. Sum up those verses, Jesus basically says, how can Satan cast out Satan, guys? Really? That's, that's what you think's going on. Satan is undermining himself by employing me to make a public disgrace of him? Who works that way? It doesn't make any sense. Jesus is actually engaging in apologetics here with the scribes. He's just pointing out to them that their reasons have no foundation. It's just not common sense. And he very patiently brings them over and just says this to them in parables, right? And he points out, look, the strong man is going down because I'm here now. I'm not working for the strong man. I'm against Satan. The scribes don't even use his real name, but Jesus does. He say, look, let's be very honest. I am against Satan and everything that he's doing. And these exorcisms are all proof that I'm bringing down the strong man. I'm not working for him. It just doesn't make sense. That's really what Jesus is saying. So he goes on to say this. Now, this is an amazing statement, verses 28 and 29 because he's responding to their accusation that he has an unclean spirit. He says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So let's unpack that a little bit. First, he's saying two things, right? First, he's saying something very encouraging to you if you want to follow him. To the people who are learning from Jesus and following Jesus from all walks of life and some of the most disreputable walks of life, Jesus is saying, there is no unforgivable sin. There's nothing that you've done that will keep you away from me. You know, we, we always have unforgivable sins in our lives, don't we? If, if you do this to me, I'm cutting you off for good. Or if you're that type of person, you'll never be welcome in my home. You'll never be welcome in my church. We all have different types of rules for what sins in our lives are unforgivable, right? In certain circles, it may be, well, if you've been divorced, good luck finding a place here in this church. Right? Or maybe in your workspace, there, there's some type of a habit or something that's happened that you lose your setting, you lose your job, and you're never invited back, maybe for good reasons. But we operate that way as people. If somebody does something against us or the organization, we cut them off for good. It's an unforgivable sin. Jesus is saying, if you're willing to follow me and learn from me and stay with me, there is no sin that can keep you away from me. And that should bring you great encouragement and hope if you want to be with Jesus. But he's saying something else. He's saying to the scribes something that's really a warning. Okay, he's saying there is one unforgivable sin. 
It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, blasphemy, in short, is is acting and speaking in such a way as to undermine the person and the work of God. If you are acting and speaking in a way that undermines the glory, the majesty, the goodness of our Creator, according to the Old Testament and the Jewish tradition, you are committing blasphemy. See, when, when Jesus declared a paralyzed person's sins forgiven, the religious leaders thought he was blaspheming because they thought only God can forgive sins. You're opposing God by claiming you can forgive sins. So that's really what blasphemy is. It's an in-your-face rejection to who God is and to what he does. And Jesus is saying the only thing that God won't forgive is when you blaspheme his Holy Spirit. Now, how do you go about blaspheming God's Spirit? Well, the Bible, the Bible makes very clear that what the Spirit of God does showcases Jesus. If you read through the New Testament, the whole point of the Spirit of God's work in the world is to say, hey, see this guy, Jesus? This guy comes from God. This guy is important. Listen to this guy and trust this guy because when God works and when God speaks, you see it and hear it in this person. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps people know and see and trust Jesus, okay? So to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is basically to say to God, what you're doing in Jesus, I don't buy it. Whatever Jesus is and whoever he is and whatever he's saying, I don't buy it, God. That's what it means to work against the Holy Spirit. It's to deny what the Spirit is doing, and the Spirit is showcasing Jesus to the world. The way, uh, the way one... Let's see, I'll put it up there. The way one uh, commentator puts it is this. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit denotes the conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' word and act. I think the simplest way to put this is this. God will not forgive the rejection of his son. If you don't get Jesus, right? if, you don't, if you don't understand him, right? if you don't want to know him, what Jesus is saying is, well, then you cut yourself off from God's community. You cut yourself off from God's family when you reject to recognize Jesus for who he truly is. So he says this to the scribes. Now, what does he do with his family? Because he doesn't talk directly with his family because they can't get at him. By the time they get to the house in Capernaum, it's so crowded that Jesus and his apostles can't even eat. There's no way the family is getting inside the house. So they send word through the crowd to Jesus, hey, we've come to take you home. You know, it's like you, know, you, you hear the loudspeaker, please send Brian Lopiccolo to the main office. His parents are here to get him. Right? Jesus' family is here to take him home. So they send word through the crowd, your, your, your brothers are here, your mom's here, it's time to go home, Jesus. Enough is enough. Okay. And Jesus doesn't see them. He just, he just responds. He takes this as an opportunity to teach more. Right? Say, Jesus, your family's outside. They want you to come home. And what does he say? Verses 33 through 35. Who are my mother? And my brothers, right? And then he looks around at the people he's teaching. Who are the people listening to him? Tax collectors and sinners and those who are following him. And he looks at them and he says, you're my family. 
I'm quoting him. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Now, what's the will of God? Is some people at this point go, oh, I knew it. I knew there was a catch. I knew there was a catch to Christianity. I do have to do something. I do have to perform some type of a ritual so that God will accept me and love me. I've got to do some work that constitutes following his will. Okay, so what is it? See, I knew religions were all the same. God will love you. God will be nice to you and let you into heaven if you're a good girl and a good boy. So tell me what it is. Well, that's not at all what Jesus is saying. There's another place in the Gospels, in, in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, where people are asking him, uh, not who belongs to your family, but look, we want to know what God demands of us. What's the work of God? What work, right? What action, what observance, what law will God look down upon us in gratitude and, and let us in if we perform that, that deed? Well, this is actually what Jesus says to them. Uh, they ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. The work God requires of people is to believe that Jesus is for real. There, there is no, there's no, there's no good deed that gets you into heaven. What God requires is faith. So we have two responses here. The, scribes, the response to the scribes, the response to his own family. And we get two truths out of these responses. The first truth is this. If you don't get Jesus, you basically disqualify yourself from his kingdom. Okay? The other truth is this. The people who do get Jesus, get Jesus by faith. Okay? It's by faith. That's, that's the distinguishing feature. That's what makes a person part of the new humanity, the new community of reconciled, redeemed, healed people that Jesus is drawing in from across history and across all racial, lingual, national, national boundaries. People who by faith recognize that Jesus is coming from God and speaks for God and represents God to us. So those two truths, okay? The people of God are a people of faith, and Jesus brings us together. Now, there is a lack of faith that's exhibited in this, in this account, okay? You see it in the scribes, and you see it in Jesus' own uh, immediate family. A lack of faith, and it's expressed by embarrassment and skepticism. His family's embarrassed by him, and the scribes are skeptical of him. I want to ask you a couple of questions at this point. I'd like to hear what you think. In your circumstance, what, why might someone be embarrassed by Jesus? What could be a reason for someone to feel embarrassed about Jesus? You're different if you think you're different if you follow Jesus. So being different than everybody else could be a reason to feeling embarrassed. Yeah. Um, 
you could be embarrassed because you're thinking about how uh, public media portrays Christians. Okay, you're, you're, you're thinking about not only am I different, but wow, there's a perception about me out there. And I'm worried that I'm going to um, play into that perception. Okay, there was one over here. Interesting. So, so if you're seeking social acclaim, if you're seeking some type of sp position in society or in your circles, faith, open faith could be a, um, uh, an obstacle to that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you're the only one in your whole family who believes that way. If you're the only one in your whole family who actually believes in, in the Christian message or in Jesus himself. Yeah. You follow Jesus, you're not cool, you're a nerd. You can't do things that we do. Which is really ironic because who knows what the people were doing who are actually following Jesus and listening to him teach. Yeah. So if you work in a scientific department, you might be embarrassed if it is not provable, not empirical, yeah, if you work in a scientific environment in Western culture and, and you're a person of faith, you may be seen as simplistic or, or lesser, a lesser scientist. Um, yeah, and so that could be embarrassing. What's ironic about that is, is contemporary discoveries of science are only confirming um, what certain things in the Bible uh, say. And, um, and, and what's odd is, yeah, you, you're, people are saying you can't prove, you can't prove the foundation of your faith. Well, you can't prove that there is no God. This is actually, I just was learning from a, an apologist named Gary Habermas, and he was saying, actually, um, Christianity has something to prove. Christianity is the only religion that actually has something positive to prove about God, the resurrection itself. Every other, every other, uh, every other world religion has, does not have something positive positive to prove. It's only negative. Interesting. Anyway, I kind of rambled there. Good thought, though. Any, uh, one more. By being a Christian openly, you kind of put yourself in the spotlight, and now there's a fear that they may think you're a hypocrite if you don't live up to what they think are Christian standards. Yeah, good, one more. There's a tension with, yeah, there's a tension there. There's relation, and that was very honest because there's always, there's always very, very, uh, very human broken dynamics in our relationships with one another. So 
we may be a Christian, but what they may be seeing, is it always Christ-honoring or is it self-honoring? Uh, and so some of the embarrassment just comes in, people see the true you. People see the real you right in front of them. And sometimes they don't know whether they're looking at Jesus or, or just you. <laughs> I, I had a, you said uh, your, your boss blasphemes the name of God. I have a relative who, um, not a Christian, uh, a devout skeptic and uh, kind of an open atheist and uh, uses the Lord's name in vain constantly, just constantly. And, and after years of not saying anything, I finally said, you know, um, for someone who doesn't believe in the guy, you use his name all the time. <laughs> and, and so another relative said to me, you know, I totally forgotten I had said that. Another relative of mine said, you know, when you said that to him, he doesn't use that name anymore. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, good, good thoughts. I, I think a big part of embarrassment, you know, if you're a person of faith, I think a big part of the embarrassment sometimes is subjectivity. Too much subjectivity. Jesus' family... They couldn't see him for who he truly was. Mar Mary's identity as a mother and, and his siblings' identity as younger brothers and sisters and, and how the crowds and the public attention and the conflict and the criticism affected them clouded the reality of who he really was. Now, sometimes, especially like me, if you were raised in a Christian family, if you were raised um, in, a, in a Christian setting and in the church, you have bad memories of church. You have bad memories of Christians. And sometimes you equate those bad memories with Jesus himself. And he becomes an embarrassment to you. And you don't want other people knowing that you're a Christian because now they're going to know that you're associated with those wackos. Or, or with, with those corrupt people who call themselves Christians. And there's so much subjectivity in you that you can't step out for a second and say, wait a minute, there's a difference between my experience and who Jesus really is and what he's really said. And so we believe he's an embarrassment to us, but we're not able to get out of our own way, subjectively speaking. It's also, and some of you mentioned it, the exclusive claims of the Christian message that there's no other way to God but through Jesus. And for some people in our society, well, that's the unforgivable sin in our culture. To say that there's only one way to God, that there's only one way to truth, that's America's new unforgivable sin. Exclusivity when it comes to worldview and faith itself. And we know that. And isn't that embarrassing sometimes? that people think you're unintelligent, you're weird, you're a thing of the past. Now the scribes had a skeptical problem, right? They didn't love him like his family loved him. They hated him. Now for the scribes, I think it was skepticism. Let me ask you another question. In your circumstance, what makes people skeptical of Jesus? Or maybe what makes you skeptical of Jesus? Okay. Some of you already made comments that suggest answers to this. But what do you think? Why would people be skeptical of Jesus? In the back. 
So maybe, so people in the world see a, a disconnect between what was important to Jesus and what is important to his followers regarding how to reach people like refugees, how to serve people even like, which is very, very much a contemporary current issue right now. Are you saying that some people would be skeptical of Jesus because, because of what they see in his followers? Okay. And that's consistent with the gospels because his, his disciples were always seven steps behind the reality of what he was trying to do in the way back. It's too good to be true. That cuts right to the heart of, of what we see here, guys. Some people just think it's too good to be true. You know, there, there, are, there are scientists in the last several decades who despite how scientific discoveries have only supported the idea of intelligent design behind the universe and behind creation itself. There are scientists who still refuse to admit that there may be intelligent design behind everything. And they come up with cockamamie ideas like aliens billions of years ago put little seeds, you know, basically DNA here on, on, on planet Earth, and that's where humanity came from. That aliens from another part of the universe came here and got us going. That is the nature of skepticism, that it's the idea of a, of a creator is it's too good of an idea. We just can't believe that. We won't believe it. And there's no, rational, there's no rationale behind it. It's not reason. I don't, it doesn't matter what you say. Deep down, it's personal. It's like the skeptic. It's like the, these, these scribes. It was illogical why they thought Jesus was possessed by a demon. They were coming at him from faith and belief as well, but belief against him. He was a threat to them and their system and their way of life. They refused to believe him. Okay? And that's often what happens in this world is we believe that nothing that good can be true. Nothing that good can exist. There is not a God who will forgive me of the things I've done. There is not a God who will allow you to behave the way you're behaving. So I don't believe. I just, I just challenge you, if, if, if you're struggling with, with skepticism, real doubt, I want you to just ask yourself, is it really reason and good thinking that's beneath my doubt? Or is there something personal going on? Am I skeptical because of something deep in me that has more to do with a belief system than with a way of arguing about things? Anyway, think about that. Um, C.S. Lewis actually makes a point in his book, Mere Christianity. I know we have that on the book table, unless someone's signed it out. We have mere Christianity on the book table. But C.S. Lewis says, look, you only have three options when it comes to the Jesus in the Bible. There's only, he can only be three things. He's either got to be a lunatic, like somebody who, th who thinks he's a poached egg, like somebody who's nuts off his rocker. When you look at the things he says and the things he does, he's either a lunatic to say he's God and he comes from God, or he's something far worse. He's the devil of hell. And that's what the scribes said he was. His family thought he was nuts. The scribes thought he was basically Satan. And C.S. Lewis says, those are two of only three options you have when you look at Jesus Christ. The things he said and the things he did, he either was completely insane or he was 
the most wicked person that ever walked the face of the earth. You can't look at what Jesus did and see what he said and come to the conclusion that he was a good teacher and a good person. He, he wasn't. The only third option is to believe that he's the son of God, C.S. Lewis says. Either he was nuts or he was terribly wicked or he is who he said he was, the son of God, and you can acknowledge him as Savior and Lord and worship him and allow him to change your life. Those are our only three options, and, and we really have to pick one of those three, C.S. Lewis says, and, and I believe he's right. So, um, through Jesus, God welcomes people into this new humanity, into the community of Jesus Christ. And, and the only people that Jesus excludes are the people that exclude themselves. That's really what he's saying. The only people who don't get into Jesus' community, his inner circle, are the people who don't want to be in it. And there is no sin he will not forgive if you want to be with him. If you don't want to be with him, the reason that's unforgivable is because you've just canceled yourself out. And why would, why would God forgive that if you don't want to be with him by acknowledging the identity of his son? But it's marvelous to think of who's in this community, right? This is supposed to be encouraging now. If you want to be with Jesus, it's marvelous to think about who's in this community. Look what the apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Now, remember, Paul was a Christian who formerly in his life encouraged the execution of, of Christians, right? He was proud of that. Right? And now, he, he was a changed man. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now stop for a second. That's what our culture wants to hear. You're so exclusive, you Christians. Christianity is a bunch of, it just, it rejects everybody. You've got to be perfect to get in. But Paul doesn't stop. Look at this. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And so what we see here from the Apostle Paul is that the community of Jesus Christ is composed of people that you would never think would be allowed in because of their lifestyle, because of their deeds. And Jesus says, no, they are mine. As long as they want to be with me, I will wash them. I will purify them. And the only people who aren't included are the people who don't want him. And it's that simple. Look, man, I'm on that list of people. I don't know if you think you are. I'm on that list. But I was washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And whatever we talked about last week, as we grow in our faith, we grow in recognition of our sin to the point where we can say, I'm the biggest sinner I know. And if Jesus can accept me, he can accept anybody. Right? So, the people of God are a people of faith, and Jesus brings us together. Now, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons, the Trinity actually broke up that happy family. 
so that you could be a part of God's family. When Jesus hung on the cross and took on the sins of humanity, God the Father had to reject him in that moment, and God the Father had to judge Jesus on the cross for carrying our sins. And that was a moment when God, Jesus said, God, why have you forsaken, my Father, why have you forsaken me? Right? We saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus in his baptism in Mark chapter one, but, that was when Je- but now on the cross, Jesus was totally alone. We'll learn about it later, this, later next year. And when Jesus was totally alone, the Trinity was broken up. So that family was broken so that you could be brought into that family. That's the gospel. Jesus was forsaken by his father so that you wouldn't have to be forsaken. And through his death and resurrection, we can all now be a part of him. So faith believes that Jesus is God's answer to the world's hurts. Faith believes that Jesus is God's answer to your hurt. As our brother in the back said, it's hard to believe that there's anything that good. But that's what Jesus is saying, right? The, the, the resolution to your pain and to your hurt is not something else and somewhere else. Jesus is saying, it's me. Are you willing to trust me? Because if you are, I'm never gonna reject you. I won't reject anyone who comes to me and wants to learn from me. I don't care what their past is. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. <laughs> Look at these people. Do you really think you have something to be embarrassed about? If these are the type of people that Jesus says, they are mine, and I died for them. And just consider that your skepticism can't produce a better alternative to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it is so difficult. It is so difficult to follow your son and always understand him. Never feel a shred of skeptical doubt Never feel a fearful twinge of embarrassment. Father, help us to stay close to Jesus, to see him for who he truly is, to hear his voice and respond with belief. Father, we are broken people, but help us to find healing and hope in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.